So boys and girls, I need to ask a question of the older folks in the room, okay? But you guys can listen in. But this is really for your big brothers, your big sisters, moms, dads, friends. If you're an adult, let me ask you this. Did you ever play dress up as a kid? You ever put on a cowboy hat and all of a sudden you're not in your room anymore. You are riding through the great American West. Or maybe you put on a tiara and instead of being surrounded by stuffed animals and toys, no, you are a queen receiving visitors at her castle. Let me ask you this. What if it wasn't make-believe? What if that hat, that tiara, those coats, those dresses, what if they were actually portals into a different reality? And what if that reality wasn't make-believe, it was actually more real than your everyday life? Well, that's the premise, of course, behind the great set of books, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. When Lucy and Susan, Edmund and Peter, when they go through the wardrobe into Narnia, they're not going into a make-believe world. They're going into a reality that in some senses is more real than the reality that they experience in England. Something similar happens when we gather together for worship. Something similar happens when we gather together to worship God because in worship, God actually peels back a layer, a layer of the new reality, the coming new creation that soon will be true for everyone. We get to experience it at least in a small way. And as we participate in it, we get to come to realize that this new reality is actually more real than our everyday reality. It's more important than our everyday reality. It determines things for us that are far greater than what we experience in school or work, in marriage or friendship. How do we enter into that reality? What's the wardrobe that we go through in order to experience that reality. It's baptism. Baptism is our entrance into the church. Baptism is the beginning of our being part of God's people. Baptism is the visible sign of the spiritual reality of our being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This morning, I've got one big idea that I want to try to get across to you. Here it is. You and I are transformed by God through His work of baptism in order to become sons. I'm going to say that again. You and I are transformed by God through His work of baptism in order that we might all become sons. And I say this every time, but ladies, that includes you. The dudes here get to be brides, you get to be sons, okay? We're going to break that big idea apart into three clauses, and that's what we're going to work through this morning. 
So first, what do we mean by this word transformation? What does it look like for us to be transformed? Well, to be transformed, there has to be like a before and an after, right? Say you're going to do some home remodeling. You go in and you take before pictures so that you can show the after pictures as well. Or you're going to do a diet. You want to take a before picture, and I am perfect specimen of the before picture right now, uh, and then you're going to take an after picture. Before pictures are never pretty. They're always messy. Well, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, is a before picture. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Who is Paul talking about here? Who's the we? In some senses, it's not you and I. It's actually Israel. But Israel is a representative for all of humanity, including you and I. Israel was held captive by the law. Well, Eric, I thought that the law was good. I mean, it doesn't David sing in Psalm 119 that he loves the law of God? Yeah. But the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with you and me. We break the law, and that means that we are imprisoned by its judgments, by the guilt and condemnation of the law. So we were held captive by the law. But I want you to notice that there's a story being told here. This is the, the before picture. It all happens before faith came. See, Paul is pushing us to think beyond that sad situation of captivity and imprisonment. He's pointing forward to a change that's coming, a transformation that will occur. But the change isn't something that you and I do. The change isn't left up to us. No, we're going to look for someone outside of us. We're going to look to something or someone who can rescue us. Now, in verse 24, Paul changes the word picture slightly. We go from a prison word picture to a family word picture. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. A guardian in this context would be someone that the family would hire to oversee minor children during this time of, of Roman society. Someone that was an employee of the family that had strict orders to ensure that the child behaved and that the child learned and that the child matured into a fully grown adult. But whatever the situation is, I want you to see that the law is still in some sense restricting us. The law is still in some sense preventing us from what we need to achieve. See, the law didn't just condemn because it was the guardian, it also taught. It also promised and protected Israel. See, the law taught Israel all the things that God intended for Israel to understand. The, the law pointed forward to the Messiah that was to come. The law protected Israel by setting up rigorous boundaries be, uh, around Israel so they wouldn't get polluted by their pagan neighbors. 
But not even teaching, not even protecting could bring Israel to fullness, could bring Israel to maturity, could transform Israel. As we heard this morning from Acts chapter 7, despite the good teaching of the law, Israel killed her prophets. Despite the protection that the law offered, Israel still whored after other gods of the other nations that surrounded them. So again, whatever picture you want to use, the problem is the same. Whether we think of a prison or a family, the problem is that the law is unable to give us new life. It's unable to transform us. It's unable, as Paul says in verse 24, to give us justification. It points to that new life. It promises that new life, but it has no power in it to actually transform us. We need a change agent. We need someone working on our behalf to change us. And that's God's work in baptism. And this is the second part of this big idea. We are transformed by God through His work of baptism. Look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Real quick, I want you to notice something here. Whose work is baptism? Paul doesn't say, now, when you baptized yourself, or when you went out and and made your profession of faith, no, he says, as many of you as were baptized. We are the subjects of baptism. Baptism is done to us. And it doesn't matter if I'm over here holding a little baby or if a young child is standing next to me or a full-grown adult. It's not their work. It's not their promise. It's God's work for us. The action is the same. The result is the same. Baptism isn't my testimony to God. It's not my testimony to you. It's God's work for me. Did you notice in verse 27 that Paul says we are baptized into Christ? What does that mean? Partly it means that Jesus is the hinge on which the world turns. He's the one that that the law pointed to. Back in verse 23 when we read, before faith came, well, the very next verse we read, well, it's, it's talking about Jesus. That's the one that changes the world through his life, death, and resurrection. And that means that those who are identified with him in baptism, they are also changed. Just like Jesus changed the world, so those who are identified with Jesus in baptism are changed. They are no longer subject to the prison of the law. They are no longer subject to the guardianship, the training wheels of the law. No, Paul goes on to say that you've become an heir. You're an offspring of Abraham. You have been given a title, a deed, an inheritance to the new creation itself. Paul uses this very illustrative language of putting on Christ to describe baptism again in verse 27. You are baptized into Christ, having put on Christ. Christ is pictured here as a garment, as a cloak. 
something that envelops us, something that symbolizes our new existence so that when people see you and me, they're not necessarily seeing us in all of our sin and failure and misery. Instead, they're seeing Jesus. Now, Paul isn't just making this stuff up. He's actually pulling from the Old Testament to make this point. In the Old Testament, there would be a way of talking about changing clothing that would signify an inward spiritual change. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, we read, The Lord has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, Joshua, the high priest, is standing before God. And he's covered in just a filthy robe and a filthy turban, and he's all dirty and dusty, and it represents all of his sin. And the angel, Zechariah 3, 3, who is standing before him says, remove the filthy garments from him. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. I mean, that's a, that's a very vivid picture, isn't it? In fact, it's such a vivid picture that the early church in their baptismal rites for adult converts, they actually incorporated this kind of language, this kind of word picture into their baptisms. New converts in the early church were baptized completely naked. And after they came up out of the water, they were given a white robe that symbolized for them and for everyone around them that they had been given the righteousness of Christ. Now, surprisingly, the session has not approved that new proposal for here at Redeemer. But the idea here is that baptism is a portal. When you pass through baptism, you are going from one identity to a new identity. You are leaving behind your filthy rags of self-righteousness, and you are putting on Christ himself. We are transformed by God through his act of baptism so that we might become sons. What did Jesus hear after he had been baptized by John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. He comes up out of the river, and he hears, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Friends, those same words are true of you in your baptism too. Paul says here in verse 26 that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And again, in verse 29, that means that we are the co-heirs with Him. And that means that you belong. You belong, not because of any natural identification. That's what Paul says in verse 28. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. That's not what identifies you anymore. And it's not because you have some strength that you're bringing to the table. It's not because you have some merit that you're offering to God. No, you belong because God has acted on you. God has brought you into the new creation through baptism. Now, this is hard for us to grapple with. 
This is a spiritual reality that sometimes, even though I said that these spiritual realities are more true for us than the earthly realities that we live in, sometimes we don't believe that. And sometimes those earthly realities seem much more pressing, seem much more harder to overcome, and that was certainly the case for the Galatians. If you are familiar with the letter that Paul wrote to this church, you know that it was a church that was seriously messed up. And the reason it was seriously messed up is it kept forgetting the spiritual realities that were true of it. And so they would take it on themselves to, to do things to show God that they were really serious about their faith, that they had a part that they had to play, that there was going to be part of their salvation that they could lay claim to. The reason that you and I struggle with this is because salvation doesn't immediately change us, does it? Oh man, how many of us have said, God, why don't you just like perfect me as soon as I become a Christian? Why do I still struggle with these sins? Well, it's because righteousness isn't infused into us. Instead, it is credited to us. Instead of being changed like a blood transfusion changes you by breathing new life into a sick body, we are given a robe that covers our dead and dying flesh. And that means that you and I, even having been baptized, even participating in these spiritual realities, you and I will struggle. We will struggle with obedience. We will struggle with belief. We will struggle with hope. We'll struggle because we have been called a son, and yet we often don't act like a son. We will struggle. If we look inside for hope, if we look to our own actions for confidence, friends, we are all lost. This is why Paul wants us to, to look at baptism instead. If you are baptized, you are different. You can't see the blood of Jesus that washes away your sin. You can't see the Holy Spirit at work in you, bringing you new life, but you can see the waters of baptism. And as surely as you have had the waters of baptism applied to you, by faith, you can believe that Christ's blood has washed you and the Spirit has given you new life and you are now a son of God. We receive all of this, Paul says in verse 24, by faith. Faith is what? It's not some warm, gooey feelings inside of us. Faith looks to the work of God and says, I trust that. And what Paul is telling us here is that God is at work in and through baptism to rescue us from our sins. So we need to trust in the promise of God. We need to trust in the work of God. Don't descend into your private feelings and experiences. No, your confidence, your hope needs to be grounded in the public demonstration of the forgiveness of sins that is baptism. 
I know this is a Reformed church, a Presbyterian church, but I also know that some of you right now are squirming. You're saying, man, Eric, that sounds really Catholic to me. I'm not sure that I believe that. I can show you in our Confession of Faith where it teaches this, where it teaches that there is a close relationship between the sign, the water, and the thing that signified salvation. But before I go to the Confession of Faith, I just want to take you to Scripture. Because in Scripture, we see how God uses physical things to accomplish a spiritual good. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Through the preaching of the Word, faith is created in the human heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. By eating some bread and drinking some cheap wine, Paul says we participate in the body and blood of Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says that in baptism, you are buried with Jesus. And then you are raised to life again. Now God has to give us faith to participate in all of these spiritual realities. Otherwise, all you're going to hear are plain words. All you're going to taste is the food. All you're going to feel is tap water. But when you approach these earthly matters with faith, you can trust that God is at work and He is opening for you a new reality that you can receive these blessings. Well, Eric, how does, how does God do that? I don't know. I sometimes don't even know when He does it. But I can trust that He is at work because that's how He promised to work for me. So what do we do with this today? I have a couple of appeals Okay, let's end with this. First, if you are struggling with the doctrine of baptism, my appeal to you is to make it a priority of prayer and study. And really just even over the next couple of months, make it a priority of prayer and study. Don't just file it away and say, well, I've got a different idea on baptism. Why do you have a different idea? What is it that drives your practice? And I think particularly of some of you moms and dads who have not brought your children forward for baptism yet. I want to challenge you. Do you actually have a different belief than we do? Do you think that what we do here at Redeemer is wrong? That should be the only reason that you do not bring your children forward for baptism. Not because someone once taught you a different thing, not because someone you respect does something differently, but because you have worked through this issue. You need to come and talk with Danny or John or me or Marcus. Let us work through these questions with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not even baptized. It's not that the little ones aren't baptized. You aren't baptized, but you're a Christian. Well, why are you taking so long? 
You need to come and be publicly identified with the promise of Jesus for you. It's time for you to be called God's son. If you are baptized, and I think that's the majority of us here, whether you're baptized as a little baby or as a young child or as an adult, I want you to remember your baptism. I want you to take comfort in this work of God for us. This is why I often tell our kids, stand up when we're baptizing someone so that they can see it. Because many of them won't remember. My children won't remember their particular baptism, but they'll see it every time we do it here. And when I say to remember your baptism, this is what I want you to do. If you are shaken by a trial or by a temptation this week, remember your baptism. What did God promise you in baptism? He promised that you are his son. He promised that you are a participant in the new creation. And so when someone comes at you and tries to tell you something different, when you are tempted to believe the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, remember your baptism. Remember that you are different, that the world is different, because God has acted on you. When something happens where you are tempted to doubt the sincerity of your faith, to wonder if you are even among God's people, remember your baptism. God has laid a claim on you. You look at the enemy and you say, I am baptized. I belong to Jesus by faith. Friends, when nothing seems to be working on the inside, when every time you turn to your heart or to your mind, all you find is confusion, all you find is condemnation, look outside. Look outside to the testimony of God to you. As Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 6, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see these spiritual mysteries that are so hard for us to comprehend and yet are made so simple for us to experience. You don't hide yourself from us at the top of a great mountain at the bottom of some esoteric well of wisdom, you draw near in words, in wine, in bread, and in water. You allow us to participate in mysteries that are too great for us to comprehend simply by giving us yourself in tangible things. So Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe to grow in our understanding and to remember and to comprehend all of the promises that you have made to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.